Let's get into God's word together this morning. And as I just alluded to, as I prayed, I want to talk to you today about just simply about the cross. The days leading up to and including the day that Jesus was crucified upon the cross. You know, the the gospel message, the message of the cross is one that the Bible tells us clearly how to preach. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 17 says that we are to do it not with wisdom and eloquence. The Amplified Version says not with wisdom and verbal eloquence. Or the message says fancy rhetoric. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now that's a sobering thought. That word power there in the Greek, kenao-ho, means to deprive of force, to render vain or useless, to be made of no effect, to neutralize. God was really telling us that to preach the gospel powerfully, you have to preach the cross plainly. To preach the gospel powerfully, you have to preach the cross plainly. In other words, if we try and be clever, uh, slick, smart, we bring our fancy rhetoric and our verbal eloquence, the sobering thought is simply this. Actually, what we can begin to do is deprive the cross of its force. We can actually render it vain or useless. This is what this word means. To be made of no effect. We actually can neutralize the power of the cross if we try and get all smart and fancy in how we preach it. And so I guess what I want to say to you today is that as much as when I preach, I love a good illustration. And I I think it's good to laugh. And I enjoy those lighthearted moments. Today is going to be unapologetically without any frills. I just want to preach plainly and simply about the cross. You know, when we think about the cross, we often think about the pain of the cross, the immense physical suffering that Jesus went through when he gave his life upon the cross. And that's undeniable. But I want us to appreciate again this morning that the intention of the cross wasn't just maximum pain. It was maximum shame. The cross wasn't just maximum pain, it was about maximum shame. In Bible times, the cross was used by the Romans, yes, to inflict tremendous physical suffering and pain. Of course, it was a form of torture, and it was brutal, it was painful. But the cross was used by the Romans as an instrument of shame. Hebrews 12 verse 2, which will be our base scripture today, says, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, I really believe, as I prayed earlier on, that if we study and we understand the cross, it is a key to a revelation of how much Jesus loves you. And I'm praying, as I said earlier on, my prayer is for first-time revelations. Maybe you're watching today and you've never heard the message of the cross. I'm praying for a first-time revelation for you that Jesus loves you. Maybe you've been in church for years and you still need that first-time revelation. I'm also praying today for fresh revelations of the love of God for each one of us. Because it says there that it was for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. Who or what was the joy that was set before him? It was for the joy of saving me and you that Jesus had to overcome two big 
obstacles. In order that to be able to forgive us for our sins, to take away all our guilt and shame, to be able to have that relationship with us, to have that assurance that when we die, we will be with him in heaven. There were two big obstacles he had to overcome. Firstly, he had to endure the cross. He had to endure tremendous physical suffering and pain in the days leading up to and including his death. Secondly, he had to despise the shame. And so I want to talk to you today about the shame of the cross. It's going to be a two-part message. Part one today, part two will follow on in two weeks' time. But in Bible times, there were different forms of execution. But the cross was undeniably considered the most shameful way to die. The cross was actually only reserved for criminals, Not just any old criminal, some kind of petty thief or something like that. The cross was reserved and only used for those who were literally considered the worst of the worst. The Bible tells us the crucifixion was for those who had, quote, committed a crime punishable by death. In other words, you had to have committed the most heinous of crimes to die upon a cross. Deuteronomy 21 and Galatians 5 tells us that to the Jews, if you, desire, if you died this way, you were considered, the New Living Translation says, cursed in the sight of God. In fact, the cross was such a shameful way to die in the Bible times that Rome wouldn't even crucify their own upon it. Because they weren't prepared to bring such a level of shame upon their own. It was reserved by the Romans for foreigners and for slaves. Roman writer Cicero described the cross as the most cruel and disgusting punishment. He said it is impossible to find a word for such an abomination. Shame in the New Testament dictionary, dictionary sorry, of theology says to disfigure, to make ugly, and to expose one to the ridicule of society. That's what the purpose of the cross was. It was to disfigure you in such a way to make you so ugly in the eyes of the people and to expose you to such an incredible ridicule, level of ridicule. That's the intention they had in hanging Jesus upon the cross. And its purpose wasn't just to deter. Now, of course, when you hung someone up upon the cross, I guess there was always that hope that people would look at it and be deterred from ever thinking about wanting to commit those types of crimes because they saw crimes, because they saw how barbaric and brutal it was, and they knew the level of shame that was associated with it. But actually, it wasn't just to deter. It was to utterly degrade you and humiliate you in the most public of ways. It was to take away and strip away all your dignity for everyone to see. New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce says to die by crucifixion was to plumb to the lowest depths of disgrace. It was a punishment reserved for those who were deemed most unfit to live. A punishment for those who were subhuman. Subhuman. Wow, what a word. That in dying upon the cross, Jesus was deemed most unfit to live. The only person who'd never done anything in his life to be ashamed of, had such a level of shame placed upon him, he was deemed most unfit to live. Yet he was an innocent man. A punishment 
reserved for someone who was considered subhuman. I actually looked that word up, subhuman. It means to consider someone less than human. It's a word that we would often associate with animals. They literally were saying, do you know, like to us, we consider Jesus like a dog. He's subhuman. He's not even one of us. And for Jesus' arrest, from his point of arrest through to his point of death, the whole goal was to shame him in that way. So let's just journey through together this morning the shame that was placed upon Jesus. First of all, number one, there were the shameful accusations. 1 Peter 2 verse 22, speaking of Jesus, says he committed no sin. 1 John 3 verse 5 says, in him is no sin. And yet by willingly stepping forward to give his life upon a cross, Jesus is literally being charged with the worst of human sin. At this time, it's Passover feast. You know, I've read that many times. I'm sure we've all read the account of the crucifixion, the account from Jesus' arrest to his death many times. But it just struck me as I began to study this. It was Passover feast. In other words, the city of Jerusalem would have swelled at this time. The city was packed. Big crowds were present. And through those packed streets, John 19 tells us, they made Jesus carry the very thing that was so disgusting and held in utter contempt by everyone in society that you can imagine Jesus carrying his cross through packed streets. You can almost begin to feel and sense the utter contempt of the crowd as he was forced to drag it through. The shame that was being placed upon him. You can imagine the jeers and the jibes that were coming forth as Jesus is literally carrying shame. Carrying sin. The disgust that people would have felt as he dragged it through those streets and then to be hung upon it as a public spectacle for everyone to see. Lifted high and to be hung between two robbers. Between two people who in that day had been deemed most unfit to live. Subhuman because the heinous level of the crime they had committed. And Jesus is hung between two robbers and seen in the very same light. Such shame. Then there's the shameful mocking. Matthew 27 verse 39 through to 40. Those who passed by derided him, it says, wagging their heads. That word derided there, if you look it up in the Greek, actually means they laughed. It means to jeer and to laugh at those who passed by. They laughed at him and wagged their heads as he hung upon the cross and said, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. That wasn't just the same. They said it as they laughed. They mocked him. Matthew 27 verse 43 says, He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If he desires him. For he said, (laughs) He's the son of God. Shameful mocking. Shaming him in such a way that the goal was to actually systematically break down his very sense of identity. Who he was as a person. Not just as a man, but as the son of God. 
to so shame him in a way the goal was that they wanted him to feel so worthless and to be seen as so worthless. They would begin to shame him in a way that would break down his very sense of identity. Or that was their hope. You know, in the Old Testament, there were three main offices, prophet, priest, and king. The prophet, the word of God, To the people, the priest, the one who offers sacrifice on behalf of the people and becomes the mediator between God and man. The king, the one who would rule and deliver the people from their enemies. Those three offices were normally distinct from one another. In other words, you didn't normally get a prophet who was a priest, a priest who was a prophet, a king who was a priest. You get the impression. But the father sends Jesus to fulfill all three. His identity, who he is, is he is the prophet. He, Jesus, is the word of God to us, to the people. He's the priest, not the one who would offer a sacrifice, but become the very sacrifice. The only mediator we now need between us and God. The one who's made peace between man and God, who's restored relationship. And he's the king, the one who will rule Not temporarily, but forever. Who has delivered his people from their enemies. The one the Bible calls the king of kings. That's his identity. He's the prophet. He's the priest. He's the king. But they mock him as a prophet. Systematically trying to break down his own identity. Who he was and who he was before the people. Before Caiaphas in the council after his arrest. Matthew 26, verse 67. They spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said what? Prophesy to us, Messiah. Who hit you? Do you ever feel like sometimes you just have read those words and you need to just pause? And just actually think about what you're really reading. The Son of God, they're spitting in his face. They're striking him with their fists. They're slapping him and saying, prophesy to us, Messiah. Who hit you? Matthew 27, verse uh, 27 through to 31. On to Pilate, he goes. He's just before he's about to be led away to the cross. It says, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion Before him, we're coming back to that in a minute. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reed in his hand and kneeling before him. They mocked him saying, hail, king of the Jews. And they spit on him and they took the reed and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. They mocked him not only as prophet, they mocked him as king. It says they gathered the whole battalion before them. You'll see a little note there that refers you to the notes in your Bible, a little letter B as it is in my Bible. You look down there and it says that they gathered him before a whole, a whole, sorry, a cohort, a tenth of a Roman legion, which was usually about 600 men. Jesus stood surrounded by 600 men. 600 men, and that word mock means to play with and to jeer and to deride. And the Amplified Version says, literally says this, they made sport of him. 
Can you imagine what it's like to be crowded and hemmed in by 600 men whose sole goal and aim is to mock you and make sport of you and deride you and laugh in your face and torture you and hurt you and shame you in such a way? What it would be, you know, I, I struggle sometimes when someone, you know, when someone's aggressive towards you and they get right up in your face. And your reaction is like, out of my face. And we're talking about one person. But here we're talking about 600 people upon him in that way. Twice they strip him, the son of God, naked. Once in front of 600 soldiers. Can you imagine the humiliation and shame as the son of God stands naked before 600 soldiers? And they strip him again and hang him upon the cross. You know, the painters paint a nice cloth that covers Jesus up for obvious reasons. You know, for the decency of all who might look upon it. But friends, be, don't be mistaken. He was hung naked before everyone to see. The shame. They put their scarlet robe upon him, a garment of dignity and office that was worn by Roman officers of rank in those days. They make him a crown of thorns that they put on his head, a reed which they put in his hands, and they kneel before him as they laugh in his face, 600 of them, Hail, King of the Jews. They make a sign to hang over him on the cross that said the same. It's all just mockery. And shame. Here, how wear your royal robe, your crown of thorns, your reed in your hand. They mock him as a priest. He saved others, yet he cannot save himself. In other words, how can he be the one who can mediate between God and man? He can't even save himself, let alone save anyone else. They even mock his prayers. After they hear him cry out to the Father as he prays one last prayer before he breathes his last breath, they say to him, what, they say, what do they say there? Matthew 26 verse 40, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. There's shameful accusations, there's shameful mocking. Then there's the shameful suffering that leads to a shameful death. Jeering and laughing as they flog him. Don't forget, the, there's a note in your Bible that will tell you that when it says they scourged him, that that whip, that cat of nine tails had metal and bone twisted into it to, as they whipped to cause such a level of pain, it would grip into the flesh. His body was being absolutely torn apart. It says there that they spitting on him. I mean, even in society today, me and Beth and the kids like uh, Jake and Amy got into him now as well. Claire's, Claire's not been converted yet to watching the police documentaries, but just the kids, we, we, we watch them. You know, still today, it's interesting, isn't it, that they'll, the police, when they, they'll suffer the violence and everything like that, but when they start spitting on them, it's like the lowest of the low, isn't it? They won't tolerate. It's the only time you seem to see them get really cross and angry that they will not be spat on because it's like, it's just like you're a nobody. You're a nothing. They're spitting on him, slapping him, punching him, beating him over the head with a staff. Just listen to these words from Isaiah 52 verse 14. There were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred Beyond human likeness. I mean, how badly do you have to be beaten before people actually look at you and say, I can't even tell that's a man. 
The message version says he didn't even look human. A ruined face disfigured past recognition. John Piper alludes to the noises, the shameful noises he'd have made as he hung upon the cross in that level of agony and pain. Your body's broken, your hands and feet are nailed to across all your weight hanging upon those nails. You literally can't catch a breath because your whole diaphragm is sinking down in the weight. And every time you want to breathe, you've got to try and push yourself up on the weight of the nails just to <gasps> catch a breath. You're hanging naked in the hot day sun as everyone gathers round to watch you. The shame of the noises you make from the pain and the agony that you're in. John Piper says, Jesus' friends gave way in shame and abandonment. His reputation gave way in shame and mockery. His decency gave way in shame and nakedness. His comfort gave way in shame and torture. His glorious dignity gave way to the utterly undignified, degrading reflexes of grunting and groaning and screeching upon the cross. Now, I have a question this morning. How on earth can anyone handle that level of shame? How can anyone handle it? Don't forget that Jesus wasn't operating in some kind of superpowers. He was fully man and fully God. But he laid aside all his privileges and rights and everything like that to live like me and you. To depend upon the Father. We know the agony that was in his heart. Father, if there's any other way, you know, can this cup pass from me? We know that he sweat drops of blood. How can anyone handle this level of shame? To feel this much shame. I think we all know something of shame in our lives as humans. We all know that feeling in some way or other from either something that we've done wrong. Or something that's been done wrong to us. We've all experienced something of a feeling of shame. I trust I'm not alone this morning in saying I know what something of shame feels like. The shame we've felt for our own failings and shortcomings. Or the shame that's been exported upon us or onto us. Because of someone else's actions. Have seemed to cause shame for us. Because of what they did or said or done. And we'll know that shame is an incredibly powerful emotion. The feelings. Shame is the feelings that we carry forward. There's a difference between guilt and shame. I'll get into this next time. But shame is ultimately the feelings we carry forward with us from the wrong that we've done or has been done to us. We may know that we've been guilty for something and we may come to God and be forgiven. But sometimes we struggle with the feeling of shame. And so shame is a powerful emotion. We might be ashamed of the fact that we seem to come up short or live our lives not in the way that we should or we're not doing the things we should do or being the people that we should be. Or we might feel that shame because of what someone's done to us that's left us with such a little sense of worth or self-value. Shame can define how you see and think, sorry, how you think and how you see yourself, your own sense of self-worth and value, your identity. It can affect, define how you relate to others. 
It can define how you relate to God because you begin to live in a way that says, I don't feel like I am worthy of his love. I'm not worthy of his grace or his acceptance or his purposes or his plans. So if we think back just for a minute this morning to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, there we see what the common response to shame so often is. Genesis 2 verse 25 says, Having created them, it says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. In other words, the Garden of Eden, paradise, wasn't just paradise because they had beautiful scenery to enjoy. We know they did. But it wasn't just the beautiful scenery that they had or the fact that the Lord would come and walk with them in the cool of the day. It was paradise because there was no shame. It was a shame-free environment. In other words, God's original intention for me and you was that we would enjoy a shame-free life. And if you say to me this morning, Daryl, that sounds too good to be true. That sounds like paradise. That's because it is, or it was. Eden was paradise, and paradise was shame-free. Shame, we know, is a sin thing. We feel it because of the wrong we do or because of the wrong that's been done to us. When there was no sin, there was no shame. They were both naked and were not ashamed. But Adam and Eve fall. You know the story. They make bad choices. They sin. What happens the very next day when shame enters the scene? Verse 7 to 8 of Genesis 3 says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife did what? Hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What do we see? They made loincloths. And they hid themselves. In other words, the common response to shame is, I want to cover it and I want to hide from it. That's what shame does. When we do something, the natural common response as a result of sin is actually, I want to cover that up. I don't really want that to be seen. I don't want others to know about that. Maybe what we've done or what someone else has done to us. And what happens is it begins to redefine or define how they see themselves. Suddenly, they're self-aware in a way they were never self-aware before. It redefines how they see each other. And it begins to redefine how they relate to God. But friends, I have good news this morning. You're welcome. (laughs) Some welcome good news. God hatched a rescue plan. God hatched a rescue plan which was a way for us to live free from guilt and shame. And that plan was the cross. Jesus died upon the cross to soak up in himself all of our guilt and all of our shame. That he soaked up in himself the very worst levels of human shame. And guilt of sin that there possibly is so that me and you can live free. That he wants us to live this guilt-free, shame-free life. But we know that the key to that is the forgiveness of our sins. And placing our faith 
and our trust in him. And what astounds me this morning, and we'll have to get into more of this next time, but what astounds me this morning is that the very thing we as humans want to cover up and hide from, Jesus, with all the same feelings and emotions as me and you, chose to face. Isaiah 50 verse 6 says, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. And it blows me away this morning to think that Jesus loves me and loves you so much he would willingly be shamed like this for me. Just before Christmas, I'm... I'm Nearly done. Perhaps the band can make their way back up. We're going to sing a last song. Do you know, we may go five or ten minutes over this morning from 11 o'clock, but we need to just worship him when we get to the end this morning. It blows me away. You know, just before Christmas, we, when God began to speak this, it's about over the Christmas period, we were watching the Narnia movies. Lois, go on, feel free, go free. Uh, we were watching the Narnia movies. Uh, Jake had been studying them at school. He'd been watching the rather outdated BBC version. And uh, we said, well, we'll watch the, um, we'll watch the uh, ones that were on Disney+. Plus." Couldn't believe A Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was now like, at that time, was like, it's 2005 when that one came out. So I'm like, gosh. And so we watched it. And uh, we got to the scene when uh, Edmund has, he's, he's sinned and, and he's fallen and he's made bad choices and there's a price to be paid. And uh, he comes to the camp of Aslan where Peter and Lucy and Susan are. And Aslan representing Jesus. I'm sure you know C.S. Lewis, a Christian, and he's writing this, this story. And Aslan represents Jesus, and the white witch who represents the devil. He's carried in with all the sort of grotesque figures of demonic figures of darkness, and she demands justice. For his sins. And everyone knows that the price has to be paid. Narnia demands that for what he's done wrong, there must be a price to be paid. And Aslan invites her into a private conversation in a tent that no one else is witness to. Go and watch it when you have a moment. I've seen it many times. He invites her to a private conversation in the tent. And when they come out, She's satisfied. And no one knows what's going on, but she turns back to him and says to him, will you keep your, how do I know you'll keep your promise? How do I know you'll do the thing that you said you'll do? But no one knows at this time what he said he'll do. And he roars in such a way that the white witch, the devil, 
shudders and everyone, all the darkness, and everyone's just, it's just like that powerful roar. And that night he leaves, and uh, it's Susan and Lucy who clock him leaving, and they don't know where he's going. They follow at a distance, and they can't understand, but he comes to the stone table, and there's this, there's this scene of the white witch and all the grotesque, demonic, dark figures chanting and making noises and everything, and he walks into the mist. Remember, this is the very one who could have wiped him out in a moment, such was the power of his roar, that they felt it. But he walks into the midst of the, of the camp, and uh, sorry, at the, at, uh, the, t- the table, and they're all demanding and getting excited about the fact that he's come and what's going to happen to him. And this powerful being lays down and is just allows himself to be tied and bound in a way that he could have just wiped him out in a moment, but he's bound in such a way. And then they begin to cut away his mane and just show him, he's left Sean, this disfigured lion, the mane being his glory and everything like that we know with a lion, this disfigured lion just lays there. And you're thinking to yourself, you could snap every uh, flax that they've laid around you. You could, you could roar in an instant and stop them from cutting your mane. And yet he does it. And Susan and Lucy are looking on. They can't understand why is he allowing himself to go through this. And they, they chant like they've got victory before she takes the... Uh, knife or whatever it was that she takes in her hand and plunges it through his side and he dies on the stone table and they celebrate and cheer and and it's just that as it just hit me I just want you to think Jesus such a level of shame and this is this is when all this message began to come to my heart and I'm thinking and you did it all for me Jesus said, I could have called 12 legions of angels, it says in the Bible, to rescue me from this. But Isaiah 53 verse 7 says, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Andy, maybe you could begin to play Jesus Christ with think upon your sacrifice. That word in the for despise, and I'm sorry, I, I, I wanted to do my level best to keep it together. I'm not sort of, you know, looking to make a spectacle of myself on TV or anything like that, but it so moved me to think that he loves me this much. That word despise in the Greek is incredibly powerful because it means to think little or nothing of. To think lightly of something. Other versions say he despised and ignored the shame. Or he disregarded the shame. What does that mean? It means simply this. That as Jesus, in those days leading up to his death. And as he carried that cross through those streets. And as he hung upon that cross on the Mount of Calvary. Jesus weighed things up. The cost of the shameful accusations, mocking, suffering, nakedness, flogging, spitting, slapping, punching, jeering, laughing, and the groans of agony versus the value of saving you. And guess what? There was only one winner. You were the joy set before him. Hebrews 12 verse 2 means this. He thought little or nothing of the shame of dying on a cross 
because he thinks everything of you. My friends, you are so loved.